Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Stay tuned in just a few moments for the Thursday Morning Report, where your host, Doug McKenty, will be joined with John Turk, scientist adventurer and author of The Raven's Gift. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning, Doug. Great. There we go. We can hear you just fine. So okay, everything, everything is going well. Uh, John is the author of a new book entitled The Raven's Gift. Uh, would you like to just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to write the story? And Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I, kind of a pertinent fact. We'll get into it later as we go on. I have a PhD in organic chemistry. I, I earned that in 1971 in Boulder. I quit being a chemist and became an expedition, long-distance expedition sea kayaker. So in 1999 and 2000, I decided to paddle from Central Asia to Alaska following the big arc of the Pacific Rim, so from Japan to Alaska. Two years, 3,000 miles across the North Bering Sea. And I wrote that uh, story up in, in my book, In the Wake of the Jomen. All right, so now partway along this trip, we're really, this is the harshest thing I've ever done. We're getting really, really hammered by one of the most ferocious oceans on the earth. Can I, can I ask a quick question? How sure. do you sleep out there? Oh, not very well. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. So you're spending weeks at a time out in the out in the ocean in a kayak. No, no. The longest we mm -hmm. spent was three nights, four days. Okay. And I guess you could spend longer, but you're pretty strung out at that point. I imagine. You're in cold water. You have no sleeping bag, no tent, no place to make a hot drink. You're getting, when a storm comes in, you're getting doused with cold water every what, 10, 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of three days, four nights, you're like, you feel you're hanging on to life by not that much. Mm -hmm. I imagine. <laughs> so um, so any, any, anyway, and we'll talk about this more as the show goes on, you're, you're vulnerable, which is a good place to be. Mm -hmm. um, you're being stripped clean by the landscape, by the seascape, by the environment. So, okay, now we're in the second year of the journey. We're traveling along. A big storm comes up out of nowhere. Usually we have some evidence that a storm is coming from, um, oh, you know, change of pressure, atmospheric pressure or something. This storm just comes up out of nowhere. And we're right next to this town. So we go, okay, we'll pull into town and we'll uh, seek shelter. Mm -hmm. So we, we pull in through the surf. And... There's this woman waiting for us on the beach, and she says, welcome. We were expecting you. The grandmother caused the storm to bring you to our village. 
Right, and this is kind of something strange to be told that somebody caused this storm and and uh, brought you to this place. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I grew up in suburban Connecticut. Right. I'm a PhD <laughs> chemist. You know, this is not a metaphor. I went to a fancy East Coast prep school with George W. Bush. You know, I was steeped in the Western world, and she tells me this: the grandmother wants to talk to you. She tells me, and you know, dum 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 boo 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 boo. But, I mean, consider my situation. I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm strung out, I'm very wet. And should we talk about the the pelvis injury as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. Five years prior to um, to this expedition, I got busted up very, very badly in an avalanche in British Columbia. Yeah, this is quite a story in its own right. I mean, <laughs> you know, like I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, this guy was in an avalanche. I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Bad scene. It was uh, right. a mistake. You, you know, a pro basketball player, the, the, the basketball uh, tournament's going on now, yeah. does very well if they hit 50% from the floor. In backcountry skiing, you got to hit a hundred percent all right. your life. <laughs> You're going to get in big trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, okay. So I have this busted up pelvis, and it's bolted together, and it's sort of okay. Like on some days, I can ski and I'm active and so on. On some days, I can't walk. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have a choice, and this kind of is this cloud that goes over this whole thing of quitting being an expedition person or not quitting. And I decided not to quit, mm-hmm. to keep going, yeah. Yeah, there was a, another story I recall from the book where you're talking to the doctor, and you're sort of like, well, we already have our tickets, we're going to go, how's the hip holding up? And he kind of just looks at you and is like, well, you know, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You you can assume you're sick, or you can assume you're not sick. And um, right, but uh, look, this is not recommended. You know, don't do this at home. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, we've got you. You've got a, a busted up hip, and it's bothering you a bit, and you get washed ashore onto right. And and the woman tells me that the grandmother caused the storm because mm-hmm. she wants to talk to me. So, okay, (laughs) you you know, and and I'm kind of expecting, you know, like maybe some Don Juan Carlos Castaneda type message that she's going to like impart on me somehow. But, you know, we don't get that. It's fishing season. She's a Koryak woman. She's busy fishing. Yeah, Yeah. fishing season, you don't take time out to give some foreigner a mantra. But she did come to me and she said, look, at the end of a very brief conversation, she said, come back. It will be good if you do. And this is Mulyanot? Mulyanot. And she's uh, about 100 years old. You're not sure how, how old she is, but she's uh, around 100 years old. Right. What we're certain is that she was born during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II. Hmm. She remembers, as a young girl, maybe 10 or so, sitting on a hilltop looking down at the beach, and some gun runners from um, Alaska have come in, and her father is down on the beach trading walrus ivory for Winchester rifles to fight the, the, the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. So she remembers that's, that's part of her life. She lived, we think of the Soviet Empire as this entity that went on for a long time. She lived 
the entire rise and fall of the Soviet Empire. Yeah, that was another really interesting aspect that I found about the book was the, the Soviet history of the region and how the indigenous people of Siberia dealt with first the Americans early in the century and then the Soviets coming in and then what happened as perestroika moved in and actually um, things got worse. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Um, yeah, during, during the Soviet time, the Koryak people did okay. Uh, there were some changes in collectivization and whatnot, but they were, in, in some ways, they were affected. In some ways, they were able to maintain their lifestyle. Corporate bandito capitalism was a more severe stress on their system than uh, communism. Uh, it's an important lesson today because we're dealing with corporate bandito capitalism. I think so. Yeah, right. We have a few things to learn. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, freedom is okay, but, uh, you know, rich, greedy people. Uh, yeah. yeah. Once they have control of the system, then uh, there's not a lot that seems like you can do. There's danger there. Yeah, danger. <laughs> Okay, so uh, you're, you're speaking with Mulyanat, and she says something to you about the Holy Stone. You, need, you should go see the Holy Stone because it would be good for you. Right. So, so we go paddle away. Uh, Misha and I, Misha, my Russian uh, partner, and I go paddle away because we're on an expedition. And we get halfway out in the bay, and Misha says, you know, we have to go back. Yeah. And he looks at me, and he says, not only do we have to go back, we have to drop everything in our lives to make this happen, because this is the most important thing that's happening right now. And it was like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> and, and we did that, mm -hmm. and we came back. And the book actually recounts four additional expeditions to Siberia, each one opening another layer and understanding the, um, the spirituality of these people. Mm -hmm. So... So you go back, um, and this is about a year after the first meeting, right? When you decide to go back and, and actually visit this holy stone that you were told about. Right. And the holy stone is, is the center. In the olden days, when people traveled in small bands, 10, 20, 30, 30 people, there was no, from year to year, people didn't meet people outside the band. So you needed to exchange ideas. You needed to exchange marriage partners and everything. So there was a spring festival at this Holy Stone. And we were warned, don't take pictures of the Holy Stone. Right. If you do, you will die. And everybody else around you will die and all of that. Yeah, this is another thing that kind of makes you go like, well, all right, I guess I won't take pictures, but I don't really, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seems I a little crazy. It seems a little crazy, but it's easy enough. To, it's an easy enough concept to to adhere to. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. W when you're traveling in this way, I travel without any food, without any any support, without any helicopter support or anything. I travel in a way that I'm totally dependent on the people. Mm -hmm. And if people tell me that this is their custom. Then that's just fine and dandy. You pretty much have to go with it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you enjoy going with it. Sure. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go to the Holy Stone. Well, Mulanat asks us to go out on the tundra and find the reindeer people. See, there used to be 12,000 reindeer in this village of Ravenka. 
This is actually, again, another fascinating part of the story that you've discovered that a uh, hundred years ago, these people would have herds of 7,000, 10,000 reindeer. Right. And, uh, I mean, just huge. Um, and you wonder how they could even manage that or, uh, you know, I mean, how do, they, how do they make that happen? That seems like a lot of work, uh, considering a people that don't have the technology that, you know, that we have access to to manage those huge herds. Uh, but anyway, as we see over the course of the last hundred years, we see that the herds are diminishing. Yeah, down to zero. Yeah, ama- almost, <laughs> almost bizarrely amazing that they have no reindeer left. Yeah, down to zero. I, I mean, you talk about this, and, and you're kind of leading towards something else. Uh, let's take an example of what technology does and doesn't do. There are wolves on the tundra, and wolves eat reindeer. Okay. So now, before the Soviet time, the way people managed the wolf predation was to make deals with wolves, talk to the wolves. Right. Meet the leader of the person pack, meets the leader of the wolf pack, and you make an arrangement, you make a treaty. Okay, you can have so many deer, and then after that you leave us alone. Okay, so now you can believe that's ecosystem. Okay, then the Soviets come in and they say, hey... (laughs) We're, we're going to kill all the wolves. And they come in with helicopters, with steel traps, with guns, with strychnine, and they start murdering the wolves. And what happens? The wolf predation goes up. Right. The wolves get angry. <laughs> <laughs> you mess with us, we're going to mess with you. We had a deal. You broke the treaty. Mm. Uh, and, and there's a metaphor there about our whole relationship with nature right now. But okay. So now when the full everything... Full capitalism comes in, freedom, everything. The, the reindeer herds go to zero, rogue capitalism, vodka, um, mm-hmm. poachers, all of this sort of thing. Yeah, and you can imagine what this does to a culture that has been, you know, created over thousands of years with this reciprocal relationship with the reindeer. Uh, you to- know, suddenly our relationship with, with the... Uh, with their surroundings, uh, is just completely uprooted. People who moved into the villages were called the mouse-eating people, because if you didn't have reindeer and you needed meat, the only thing you had was mice. I thought that was really interesting, the notion that the country people were the wealthy ones, right. and the city people were the impoverished ones, And whereas in our culture, I think generally the opposite is true. You think of the city as you know, where the wealthy, really opulent people live in the country is, is sort of down and out rural. Uh, but anyway, just right. another another comparison and contrast there, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Keep them coming, yeah, Doug. Right. <laughs> um, so, so, so we decided to go out on the tundra and find the reindeer people. There was, some people had escaped with their small herds. And... Uh, the local people, the local Koryak people, hadn't been in contact with them for nearly a generation. Mm-hmm. So we got 100 gallons of snow machine fuel, two 55-gallon drums, put them on some sleds, and took off. Burr. And you go you go to the Holy Stone first, though. Oh, yeah. To, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we sit down with the map, and we say, okay, the reindeer people are probably to the um, northwest. I said, okay, well, we're, we'll go northwest. They go, no, we're going to go southwest. <laughs> I go, wait a minute, there's a you know conceptual problem here. <laughs> well, we don't go do anything 
until we go check out with the Holy Stone first. Right. <laughs> Even though we know we're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> and you have to, when you're living with these people, you have to just say, that's a great idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, just let it go. We're going to the Holy Stone now. <laughs> so we go to the Holy Stone, and what happens at the Holy Stone? Well, it's a little obelisk. It, it reminds me of the um, the obelisk in, uh, oh gosh, come on, what was that movie? The two, 2000 and 2010. Yeah. yeah. Wow, this is 2010. I know. That's why I was like, what? <laughs> Where the monkeys are dancing it's around It's all coming album. together for us. It's not that tall. It's a little taller than me, maybe uh, mm-hmm. twice as tall as I am. It's a little rhyolite, volcanic rock mm-hmm. sticking out. It's kind of interesting shape. And people have left little um, treasures there. And I brought a little bead I had gotten from uh, Nepali and t- who had told me to carry this and, and use it as a as an offering when I needed it. So I, I put that bead in the rock. And you talk to the stone. And does the stone talk back to you? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're traveling on the tundra with these people, you learn. And that was, if there's one message, one take-home message from this book, it's that you do talk to the stone. You do talk to the grass, to the storm, to the ravens. And they do talk back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just have to learn how to listen. You just have to learn how to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is this is something that's been going on for two million years in our in our brains, in our DNA, mm-hmm. and it's only been sort of made fun of in the last couple hundred. Right. And the notion behind the Holy Stone is that it's connected to the energy. It's a, an energy spot. And it's connected to, it's volcanic, so it's connected to the the energies from the center of the earth. And so... Right. And we can take energy from the center of the earth, Mm -hmm. but there's a catch. We can only take so much energy. Then we have to give energy back to the earth to complete the cycle. Mm -hmm. And this this is a theme that occurs in all indigenous cultures. It's not a coal mine. A coal mine is not taking and giving back. Right. <laughs> you know, we're not going to talk about the Gulf. Yeah. Because we've been hearing enough about that. It's taking. It's not giving back. Mm-hmm. You have to have an exchange with the earth. In the aboriginal people in Australia, the creation isn't over. Creation didn't happen and stop. It's happening continuously, and it happens through through this circle of energy from the earth to us, back to the earth, back to us, and so on and so forth. And you don't travel across the tundra without making this pact with the earth. John, let me just take a second to remind everyone that they're listening to KZYX. The time is 9.20. This is the Thursday Morning Report, and I'm speaking this morning with John Turk, the author of the new book, The Raven's Gift. We're talking about his journeys into the tundra of uh, northern Siberia and uh, his adventures with the Koryak people and uh, some of the things that he learned along the way. So if you'll continue with the story, you've been to the Holy Stone, and now you're going to go seek out the reindeer people. So we go wandering around the tundra and have all these adventures on the tundra. And 
you have to understand that the tundra is nine time zones from east to west. It's a vastness that you could pick up the United States and throw it into the middle of the tundra and it would just be a drop <laughs> in the bucket, you yeah. know. So we're out here and there's no roads, no, no infrastructure of any kind. And we're wandering around in these great circles looking for people who are hiding. And we find them. Oh, my God. Yeah, that seemed pretty pretty miraculous in and of itself. <laughs> well, yeah. And then when you found him, the guy was like, we haven't had, we had visitors here once. <laughs> there were Japanese people in a helicopter 25 years ago, and those are the only other people I've ever run into. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So this doesn't happen very often. <laughs> no, 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 no. So uh, we hang out with them for a little while, and this is what the book is about. And step by step, conversation by conversation, sitting around campfires, sitting watching the reindeer giving birth is when you start becoming incorporated. The whole book, if I had to retitle it, I would retitle it Connecting with the Earth mm -hmm. because that's what it's all about. And we get some reindeer meat, and we, we make a contact. We, we find out their migration route were there. And uh, we start going home. So now it's late in the springtime. We've stayed longer than we were, we were planning on. We drop a snow machine through the creek. Okay, thin ice, springtime, expedition, Siberia, no big deal. This is what happens. So I slide down. I'm muscling the snow machine out of the creek. And I, I break through the ice. I land on one foot. And remember, my pelvis is all bolted together. Right. And got Bam, uh, pain, pain, major pain. I'm lying on the snow. I can't stand up. So Olek, the hunter, and again, Olek, who is the hunter, is the equal teacher to Mulanat, who is the shaman. The earth wisdom and the spirit wisdom are the same because the real world and the dream world are the same worlds. So he, he tells me not, not to worry, not to be upset, that things break on the tundra, man. You know, snow machines break, we fix them. Skis break, we fix them. Your pelvis broke. It's not a problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm thinking fondly of a Feels helicopter. like a problem <laughs> yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah. I can't walk. I'm in the middle of the Siberian tundra. <laughs> So they tie me on a sled and say, we're going to go back and the grandmother's going to fix you. And so we start back. And their level of concern was such that we get halfway back to the village and they remember that there's good fishing up this other drainage and we go fishing for a couple of days. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's not a problem. Man. Yeah. We come back and Mulanat um, says, okay, you brought me reindeer meat. You... Um, you helped make contact. You did me a favor. I will fix you. And she hadn't had reindeer reindeer meat in in ten years or fifteen yeah, years. Been something like that. Yeah. yeah. So that was it. Was quite a gift for her. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And um, so she tells me to take off all my clothes and stand on one leg with one hand behind my back and the other hand stretched out in front of me, and she says she's going to go to the other world. And she's going to talk to Kutla, the raven, the raven spirit, the raven totem. And Kutla will fly to the woman who lives on top of the highest mountain, and she will fix me. But there's one catch. I have to believe. Mm -hmm. If I don't believe, it's going to be very, very bad. Right. 
So yeah, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm. Yeah, no pressure. I'm naked. I'm standing <laughs> on one foot. I'm asked in this instant to throw away my entire upbringing, my entire scientific background. Yeah, drop it. And I, I can't drop it entirely, completely, instantaneously. But I tell her that my mother never taught me to believe in kucha, but I will try. Hmm. And that really opened the door. That that changed my life. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then what happens with your pelvis after that? I mean, what's going? What What is this experience after that? She goes into the other world, and she heals me, and I'm better. And you have to understand what better means. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm a I'm a big mountain skier, so there's a certain level in backcountry skiing and big mountain skiing where you're what you call in the no-fall zone, where a fall would mean death or something very, very bad. When you're in the no-fall zone, you have to depend upon your body. Everything about your body has to function. Right. Including your pelvis. Yeah. (laughs) And since that time, since that I have been better, I've been up into Alaska in the big mountains in Alaska off Thompson Pass and skied the no-fall zone because my pelvis is better. It's not going to whinge out on me. Hmm. So that's better. Wow, yeah. I've been better forever. I'm 64 years old and my pelvis is 100%. Wow, and did this happen sort of instantaneously, or was there a process? No, it was instantaneous. Wow. Yeah, I walked out of there, and then I went to the, the school, and the local boys uh, wanted to race me on skis. They had these funny steel ski bobs, and I instantly understood that this was a roller derby, no-holds-barred, full-contact <laughs> ski race. <laughs> and my wife said, John, this don't do this. Yeah. And I, I did it. And here we are charging down the hill, uh, smashing into each other. <laughs> and I won. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I had better equipment. <laughs> so better is better. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's phenomenal. And uh, so I guess your mind must have just been kind of blown. I mean, it really. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I tried to go through all these uh, scientific kinds mm-hmm. of um, analyses. Was it coincidence? Was it magic? Was it placebo effect? And, and I write this in my book, and then after a while I throw out my hands and I go, I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it, it was better. It was better. But, and you have to understand there's some people who are going to say, okay, I'm a civil engineer, you know, I don't believe you. Okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. This is something magical that you can believe or not believe. But let's go back, when I start thinking about it, let's go back to what people did in the Stone Age. They did take a stone axe and chop down a cedar tree and make a boat and sail across the North Pacific, across the North Bering Sea, in the middle of the Ice Ages, thousands of miles across open ocean. They did keep their reindeer. They did survive. They did come out of Africa and move into every habitable environment on the earth. So you can believe the healing or not believe the healing, but let's stop and look and think about the power and the promise of what Aboriginal people did and what where their wisdom could take us. 
Well, we're looking at uh, almost 9.30. I'm speaking with John Turk, the author of The Raven's Gift. Uh, we'll start taking phone calls in a few minutes, 895-2448, if you want to get in and have a question for our guest. Uh, this is the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. And so, John, let's uh, continue on. You've had this experience, and now, well, what we were talking about a little bit before the show is uh, you realize that there is some... Uh, value to this technology. I mean, you're wondering how these the Stone Age people could have this advanced, um, well, I mean, just surviving under those conditions, but not just surviving, uh, though. They, they seem to be, at least, uh, they seem to be very comfortable in, in the old ways. Uh, they had, they seem to have abundance. Uh, they'd accomplished uh, a lot um, in conditions that most people, even with our modern technology, can't use. So you're, you're discovering some value for this other kind of technology that you've perceived. Yeah, it's a technology that's two million years old technology. What, what we try to tell ourselves, what I learned in grade school, is that tools are the important, the, the important quality that created us as human beings. And that's what we depend on. And, and, and I believe that we have to rethink that. Yeah, we have tools, and I drive a car and have a computer and all that. But we have to understand that long before we as humans developed sophisticated tools, we were developing organism. This is what carried us for two million years. The tools came later. The flute is 15,000 years older than the bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. So it was our shamanism, it was our spirit world, it was the dream world that is deep in our DNA. And if we forget that, I think it's to our peril, um, especially in modern times. You mentioned earlier, pre-show, we're coming to the end of the fossil fuel age. We are going to have to make a shift in paradigm. Yeah. That's not a maybe. Unfortunately, all of our tools are driven by fossil fuels. And so, <laughs> right. you know, maybe we need to find a, a different tool that <laughs> doesn't require fossil fuel use. Well, you know, the brain works on potatoes. Right. <laughs> Well, you know what? I have a phone call, so... Okay, you, great. You yeah. want to throw it out there and see what they have to give us? That'd be great. Uh, good morning. You're on the Thursday Morning Report. Do you have a question for John? Yes, I do. Um, in, in your beginning of the program, you spoke of being stripped clean by the environment. Right. And I wanted to know if you, the people you encountered when you had been stripped clean and therefore made ready. Are they also stripped clean, and would you elaborate on that? I think you are already, but I just wanted to uh, go back to that expression. It was really vivid. Thanks. Oh, what a beautiful question. Yeah, Thank you so great much. Question. Um, look, what we're taught in our society today, uh, in our technological society, is that we're, we are masters of nature. And and that puts us in in a situation of trying to control the situation, trying to drive the ship. Right. What we want to do, what I think want to do, what I think is a much healthier situation is to be a part of it. And to be a part of it is to accept the ebb and flow of nature. Uh, stripped clean means I'm not in control. I'm not in the driver's seat. I'm 
I'm an obser- I'm a participant in the great cosmic event that's going on here. And yeah, these these people, the closer you live to nature, the more strip clean you are. I was a commercial fisherman in the North Bering Sea. Uh, Doug was also. Mm-hmm. So even though we had diesel engines. You're out there in a 32-foot boat in one of the most tempestuous oceans in the world. You're vulnerable. Vulnerability is often considered like a negative thing. I consider it a very positive thing. Mm. Uh, Jesus went into the desert for uh, however long. Moses took 40 days to climb uh, Mount Sinai, which, you know, a good mountain runner could run up in two and a half hours. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was taking his time. (laughs) He was taking his time. And that's the whole point, to take your time, to allow yourself to... When I say be vulnerable, yeah, be vulnerable to let the nature be the most powerful thing and find your place within it. Does that answer your question? Well, she's uh, she's off the she's listening on the air now, but uh, I think that was good. Uh, We do have another call, so keep keep these rolling. They make my job a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good morning. You're on the Thursday morning report. Hi, I would like to know some of his ideas about how we can give back to the earth, and I will take my answer on the air. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, actually, I give workshops on this, um, so uh, it, it's something very dear to my heart. It's th- what you want to do is I, I think about the Aboriginal song line and the um, th- the techniques of connecting, of thinking that the earth is part of creation, like I was saying with the Holy Stone, that we are part of the cycle, that we are part of the web. And how do you do it hands-on? Well, it's something very, very, very simple. Next time you walk outside, whether you're just taking out the garbage or walking out to your car, just stop for a second and take it on the sight, smell, sounds. On a, on a bigger level, I develop meditation techniques which uses the earth. There's lots of different meditation techniques, but w- one of the techniques I do is, is like go out and find symbols in nature that symbolize the story of your life. The, the ego that you build up, uh, this unnecessary story that we we somehow want to put aside so that we can find presence. So now I'll go out and I'll find, okay, now this rock represents this part of my story, this piece of moss, this part of my story. And now I'll go out in the in the woods or in the prairie, on the beach, wherever, and then make a uh, circle around me of all of these different symbols of this story of my life that I want to get rid of. And I'll sit in them and I'll, I'll be my ego. And then one by one, I'll release these symbols into the waves, into the wind, into the river, and let the earth take them away. This is, in short, what's a, a two-day workshop. Nice. <laughs> so it's a little bit more, it's more about your perception of the connectivity, creating that connection uh, with the world around you, which is 
um, I think maybe in effect giving back, giving that, giving your energy back. Right. More of a personal perception than uh, I don't know anything that you might be able to find in the outside world. It's your ability to be in that presence. Yeah, and to start talking with the earth. Just mm. start talking with it. My daughter, for example, is an organic farmer. And she, she, she raises nursery stock, and she was going climbing for the weekend. And she said, well, I, I have to tell my plants to take care of themselves for the weekend. Going <laughs> right. And I said, you talk to your plants. She said, well, of course, if you spent as much time in my greenhouse as I do all by myself, you would talk to your right. plants too. <laughs> Well, it looks like we've got calls rolling in. Uh, let me just say it's 9.37. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm the host, Doug McKinty, and I'm speaking with John Turk, the author of The Raven's Gift, about uh, his explorations with the Koryak people in uh, Siberia. I have a lot of calls coming in, so we'll keep taking them. Great. Good morning. You're on the Thursday Morning Report. Good morning. Um I would like to ask this question of your guest. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you are very acquainted with the term biopiracy. Is is that correct? No, I'm not. Uh, I, biopiracy is a term that exists. Uh, it might have been coined by Vandana Shiva. And it's the idea that us wealthy white academic folks go to indigenous cultures and glean great gifts and then make a living from it. And I'm not suggesting that you're doing that, but I would like to hear you address how we don't do that and the lovely speaking that you did earlier about it's time to give back. If maybe you want to elucidate on what give back might look like uh, in our community. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very, very aware of this. And there was one point where I was out in the tundra and I, I was visiting with a man named Alexei, and he was telling me about his magic and his magic mountain and his magic relationship with his reindeer. And I said to him, I said, Alexei, I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. What do you want me to do with this information? If you want me, if this is a secret between us, mm. then I will not write the book. And he said, no, we are out here. Nobody knows that we are out here with our reindeer. We, Our wisdom is dying. Our culture is dying. Um, there were no women in the camp. We want you to pass this message on. And Moulinat told me the same thing. She got me a message out uh, just a few months ago that it was important because the old languages, the old ways are dying, and it's important to to have people know the strength of these wisdoms. Now, in other cultures, I'm totally aware of what you say, that people don't want this biopiracy. So... Uh, It depends culture by culture and person by person, but very, very clearly the Koryak people asked me to tell this story. Now, the the second question, what is it that I have to give back? This is also a really, really good question. I've made contact with the um, uh, Benson-Henson arm of Massachusetts General Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. To, to go back. I'm going back next year, um, next spring, back to Vivenka to, um, to 
find out information that, that they have herbs and other forms of healing that they have that they can be an exchange. And like I say, Harvard Medical School is interested in this. And my next journey, the next part of my journey, is exactly what you just suggested, which is giving back. Yeah, that is a very interesting point. Uh, yeah, as you're having these experiences with these people, you have to respect their ways, and you and you have to be a participant. I think, um, you know, from reading from from reading the book, I, I feel like. Um, John was definitely recounting his experiences. It's not like an archaeology book where he's sort of, uh, you know, where he might be objectifying or examining these people in a disassociated kind of way. But it's actually a story about, uh, you know, what he experienced. So it's it, it does, it it is, um, it's good in that way. Okay. I don't know how to Thanks. explain it, you know. <laughs> but anyway, we do have some calls coming in, so we'll, we'll let as many people talk to, to John as we have time for here. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. Uh, hi. Um, I, I just uh, had a couple comments. One was about the, uh, the tool use, and uh, I, I just thought, you know, you know, to say we've been making art since before we had tools is kind of funny because obviously, you know, cave painting is done with tools of some sort to be... Uh, making the, the earliest art that we have record of, and the flute, I would say, is a tool also. Well, sure. Um, I think he was saying we had we had tools that created art before we had tools that created war. Yeah. Well, well, well let me clarify this. This is also a good point. I also had another comment as well um, that I could get out first, or, or you could answer first. Uh, would you like to go ahead and answer, John? Yeah. And then? Yeah. Let me go ahead. All right. Thanks. When uh, two million years ago. When people, when these proto um, proto people started coming down out of the trees and, and first becoming humans, they had they created very simple tools. Uh, the hand axe. You go down to the river, you pick up a river cobble, and you flake one edge of it, and you have a, a crude tool that you you hold in your hand. Now, so so these stone tools started at the dawn of humanity. And, but the interesting thing is that for the next, I don't remember exactly, about a million years, there was very little to zero improvement of, of this tool technology. Yet people grew, the Homo erectus moved out of Africa, they started expanding, they started building their culture. So the... the to say zero tools was, was incorrect. I stand corrected. But no sophisticated tools. And then if you look at the, now we're going to take a jump to Homo sapiens. If you look at the first complete site of Homo sapiens on the coast of Africa over 100,000 years ago, what did they do? What were they doing? Again, they still had, they didn't have projectile tools. They didn't have tools that got a mechanical advantage because they were put on the end of a stick. What did they do? They went to the seashore. They collected beads. They made necklaces. They made red ochre dye. They were carving symbolic images in rocks. So, yeah, the paintbrush is a tool, but what I'm saying is that weaponry, um, tool technology to make things came secondary in our history to tools to create art, 
to to create sculpture. Yeah. Second question. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, my 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 second question was about uh, what you were saying earlier about um, the these uh, shamanistic practices that have uh, been been going on, uh, you know, for for all human history, um, maybe pre-human history, uh, and have only been I, I think you said laughed at in the last couple hundred years. I was wondering if you could expand on on that a little bit about why why it is that those practices have largely gone out of fashion in favor of, um, I mean, I don't know, uh, you know rational uh, reproducibility and, you know, uh, modern, modern ways of answering questions and solving problems. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I, I, I can totally answer the question why. That would take a whole book in itself. Right. <laughs> uh, there's a book called The Alphabet and the Goddess, which you should read if you're interested in this question. But certainly there was a paradigm shift Oh, around 6,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent where where the three major religions in terms of number of people, Judaism and Christianity and Islam, grew out. And it came out, there was a, it, it, it came at the same time as the agricultural revolution. And so with agriculture came cities, with cities came a hierarchy, with a hierarchy came a new religion. Abraham threw the idols out of the temple. This was a big change. Other than this, we could talk about this all hour. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks. Does that help? Thanks for your call. All right, that uh, that conversation about tools reminded me of a Henry David Thoreau quote that I uh, I read many years ago, but it stuck in my mind. And it's uh, he goes, he makes this statement. It's funny. He's like, and lo, men have become the tools of their tools, and that's kind of what um, you know when we talk about tools that, that that people have gotten so enamored of having all these different tools that they now we're working for the machines. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> Einstein said exactly the same oh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that it used to be that the technology was helping the humans, right. and now the humans are the slave to the technology. So maybe that's uh, that's another good reason to to turn it around here and try to find another technology that uh, maybe we don't have to work so hard to you know to work with. Anyway, we've got plenty of calls. Uh, Thirteen minutes left in the program. Eight nine five two four four eight. If you want to get in, have a question for our guest this morning, and I'll take another one. Okay, here we go. Good morning. You're on KZYX. Hey, good morning. This Hi. is George up in Willis. How are you doing? Joker. Nice. Uh, you have a question? No, I got a suggestion. Ah, let's hear it. Yeah, put a pipeline in Congress. You'd have plenty of natural gas. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> I love making people laugh. I'm 82 years old, so watch out. I just love doing that. <laughs> I work at the VA clinic in Ukiah as a volunteer. Right on. Well, thank I'm you, The only George. one left. Thank you is what she said last night. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Take George. care. Bye. Take care. All right, I've got another call. We'll take this one. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. Hello. Hi. The Raven's Gift. Yes. What about the Raven? What about the gift? All right, here we go. Uh, Very yeah. good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. Kutcha the raven was the spirit that flew to the woman who lives on top of the highest mountain and passed the message that John Turk needed his pelvis healed. And Kutcha came back with the healing, and I got better. 
So what happened is, I mean, we've only talked about a small part of the book. So then I, you see, this didn't sink in as fast as it should have. But I came back to Siberia the next time to thank Mulanot for healing me. And Mulanot said, you got the whole story wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I didn't do the healing. It was Kutcha that did all the work to fly to the top of the highest mountain. So you have to thank Kutcha. And then the rest of the book, which is fully two-thirds of the book, mm-hmm. are my efforts to thank Kutcha and my efforts to communicate with Kutcha, which turned out to be quite successful. But uh, we tried different ways. At first, Mulanat said, I will lead you personally to the spirit world, and you can go to the spirit world and meet Kutcha and thank him. And this is, of course, a whole chapter of the book, our journey together, me and Mulanat, to the, to the spirit world. I failed. I got scared. I, in this dream journey, I could see the spirit world, and I was afraid. I turned around, and I ran back. And um, this is a very important part of the book, because the next day, Olek, the hunter, the man I traveled across the tundra with, came to me, and he said, John, you're a lousy traveler in the spirit world. (laughs) But you're a good traveler in this world. Well, there you go. (laughs) So you make your journey any way you can make it. Everybody has their own power. And you have a power to make your journey in the real world. And because the real world and the dream world are the same world, then you will meet Kutcha in the real world, which is the real raven and the dream raven. And then over the course of the rest of the book, I go out into the tundra, into very harsh environments, back to where I'm vulnerable, back to the vulnerability thing. And I meet Kutcha in many times, and we have some amazing chats. (laughs) Well, there you go. Yeah, thanks for your call. Yeah. All right, we've got about nine minutes left in the program. If uh, you have a final comment, please call us up, 895-2448. Other than that, John, if you'd like to tell us when you're going to be speaking this week. Yeah, I've had a number of engagements arranged. Gail Rayburn, who's a psychotherapist and hypnotherapist uh, in uh, Little River, has set up several engagements for me. Uh, Friday, June 18th, I'll be at the Mendocino Center for Spiritual Living at 7 p.m. in Mendocino. Uh, June 19th, Saturday, Four-Eyed Frog Bookstore in Cypress Village, Gualala at 4 p.m. Sunday, June 20th, Willits Center for the Arts, 7.30 p.m. Willits, and that's at 7.30. June 24th, Thursday, Mendocino Book Company in Ukiah at 6 p.m. And um, Friday, June 25th, Red Rose, Redwood Coast Senior Center, 7 p.m. It's, you can, if you didn't get all that, right. <laughs> um, either call Gail Rayburn at 707-937-2271, or if you're no good at numbers, look me up on my website, John, J-O-N, no, excuse me, 
www.johnturk.net. All right. And is the book out now? Are there going to be copies for sale at your speeches? Or, or? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Very good. All right. I've got another call. We have some time left in the show, so I'll go ahead and take it here. Uh, good morning. You're speaking with John Turk. you have a question? Good morning, Doug and John. This is Jeff Wright on the Mendocino Coast. And, you know, we have this um, Marine Life Protection Act, the MLPA, on this coast that is um, taking away traditional harvesting lands from the indigenous peoples who were here long before any of us uh, from Europe came. And uh, this benevolent, there's quotes around that, benevolent act that is uh, purporting to protect the marine life is taking away these traditional lands where harvesting of food and, and the sacred ceremonies have gone on for eons before anybody in the blink of an eye ever came up with this Marine Life Protection Act. Is there anything that you can um, suggest from your experiences as to a way that we may be able to heal the situation and that the people who have traditionally been here uh, to utilize these lands and, and with respect and reciprocation um, be able to heal that situation to where the, it is whole and, and goes back to the way it should be as, as was done uh, with Through the Raven for you? Oh, wow, what a beautiful, beautiful question. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you Jeff, so will you much. take it off the air, though? Sure. All I'm free to line. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's Spiritually, I'm with you all the way. Uh, so now what we're dealing with is a political question. Right. Um, I entered into politics last month for the first time and went to Washington to talk to my senators and uh, with a delegation, blah, 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 about the energy bill. And, man, it's a going into politics and going to talk to politicians is a tough road, my friend. <laughs> it's a tough, tough road. So, yeah, I mean, spiritually, I'm with you. And my task out here is to, as I believe yours is, is to raise the spiritual awareness of all the people that are sharing this uh, continent, North America. Now, politically, how to go about meeting your ends, it's kind of like I'm a lousy traveler in the spirit world. I'm a lousy traveler in the political <laughs> world, even worse. So, I mean, I'd like to talk to you. If we could, um, you know, send me an email, go on my website, send me an email. If we can talk and and I can be of service, I would love to. Um, I'm, not, I'm not very skillful at doing it. I think that this question, actually, we've just got a couple minutes left, but we, it, uh, it sort of focuses on the difference between Western consciousness and shamanistic consciousness in the way that even when Western consciousness is coming out there and trying to help the environment, we're saying, oh, okay, we need to pass laws, we need to protect the environment, uh, somehow it's doing it in such a way as as to uh, make life even more difficult for people that have been living sustainably in harmony with the environment for, for thousands of years. And I, I don't know, to me it just sort of typifies that. We, we talked a little bit about the kind of the arrogance of Western consciousness and the, the difficulty uh, for it to be able to accept these spiritual or the, that the dream state is the same as the, the reality that Western consciousness perceives as all of reality. Um, 
I guess what I'm trying to get at here is is how can we bridge that gap? I mean, we, we talked a little bit about how in the book you sort of say, look, uh, maybe, you know, we'll never really understand these ways. Uh, we just need to try to glean what we can from it and uh, hope that we can develop something in the future that will be more functional for us. Well, you know, maybe more functional than this political system that that seems to to create these divisions rather than heal them. Yeah, we, and when I say we, I mean Native American people and Caucasian people and all the people in North America have to, have to preserve ancient wisdoms mm -hmm. because this is, these wisdoms are the enduring wisdoms that will help us move forward and make us sustainable as, as a human, as a human race. Um, uh, I, there is a group in San Francisco. I just spent a few days with them, Pacific Environment. You can Google them, Pacific Environment. And they are actually working um, on just this issue on how to maintain a political system and maintain Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal wisdoms within that. So, so they would be a good group to uh, contact. All right. Well, very good. The time is now 9.58. I think uh, we've completed our hour. I want to thank Mr. John Turk for being here with me this morning, author of The Raven's Gift. Uh, if you have more questions uh, or if you want to find out where Mr. Turk will be speaking this week, he'll be in town, I think, for the next five, ten days? Yeah. For the next ten days. Uh, you can contact Gail Rayborn, 707-937-2271 or visit www.johnturk.com. J-O-N-T-U-R-K dot net. Uh, I want to thank you. This has been the Thursday Morning Report. Thank everyone for listening. I want to thank everybody who's called up. Uh, you've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits, and Ukiah 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. Uh, altogether, this is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio streaming on the web at kzyx.org.